The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. Hi, Charlie here. Before anyone messages the show and calls the guys knobheads, we know this story came out in 1966, not 1963. Sorry for the mix-up. But yeah, my dad and Dan are still knobheads. What a pair of losers. Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who pod, brought to you proudly by the SJP World Media Network. I am a very hot, sweaty, melting sigh, and I'm joined by an equally hot, sweaty, melting Dan Griffin. How are you, my friend? I've got clam meat it. <laughs> yeah, okay, but you know. No and, swamp, and, and swampy balls. Swampy balls. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like it could be the name of a character from this story of Doctor Who we're about to watch. <laughs> swampy balls. The toy maker calls for swampy balls to get older Stephen and Dodo. <laughs> but he's definitely getting to because I just in my head that became swampy balls to get hold of Stephen's dildo. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear me, that's a completely different show and podcast. Um, (laughs) On today's episode of the Doctor Who pod, we are doing something we have not done before. And that is take on a story, a tale, a, a, a sequence, I suppose, that makes up part of the, I was missing episode list that they have. I believe it's 97 episodes of Doctor Who are still missing. Uh, whether we are ever going to get more or any or all of those back is, you know, each passing day, I think it's, it's, that's, that's likely. but I suppose you never know. You never know. No, you never know. I mean, I think it was just in the last couple of years, they found a load of old film reels that were in like a BBC Nigeria storage facility. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, it's a funny one because, uh, before we dive into the, the, the Celestial Toy Maker, I suppose we should sort of touch upon the missing episodes, uh, a little bit of the background of that. And I'm very much far from, a, from an, an expert, don't get me wrong, but uh, how I understand bits and bobs, I guess. Uh, well, before we dive into that, I guess, we should make sure that everyone's aware that it's so hot in Gloucester and so hot where Dan is, we're recording with our windows open for the first time in many, many, many months. So you're probably going to hear dogs barking and police sirens my end and maybe a little bit of traffic dan's end but ultimately <laughs> we're, we're both fat blokes and we're melting so people are just gonna have to pull up with it dan aren't they yeah i'm afraid so i'm afraid so it's it was that or pass out mid-record and then you just hear a thud and whichever one of us wakes up first yeah there you go <laughs> um the, the way that some of these missing episodes have been found and i suppose uh, production has been made from what audio there is and so on i always find fascinating and i suppose it is again down to the unknown with regards to the missing episodes because we don't 100 percent know what things look like and there's moments in this story that 
obviously we don't see because of the way it's been uh, reconstructed for us. But then when you look at the script and the original direction, it, it sounds pretty spectacular. But we don't see that, obviously, because we're looking at a, a, a footage made up of still images. We have some that have been reconstructed by way of animation, cartoons, and so on. And those tend to be uh, available on BritBox or ITVX or wherever you happen to watch the, the classic Doctor Who back. But basically, the BBC had a process of erasing tapes to save money, um, save space, uh, and so on. Uh, Doctor Who wasn't the only affected program, obviously. They did it to everyone. I mean, Zed Cars lost a shitload of episodes as well. I think Morecambe and Wise, there's loads of old Morecambe and Wise that is, that is still missing and probably never to be found. Yep. But with regards to how things worked with the BBC, they would send copies of their tapes out to other countries other nations and their broadcasting commissions their broadcasting companies some of them linked with the bbc some of them maybe would just pay for copies of these tapes so whereas the bbc would erase their own versions and those effectively are, are, that that particular master tape for example would be lost because it would be erased and then re-recorded over and so on especially with the advent of uh, color television in the 70s become well before then but becoming very prominent in the 70s lots of tapes were erased then it's the way it was handled is you know now trying to piece together the the missing stuff is getting things back from these other nations that were sent whole serials at a time or private collectors having an episode here an episode there or a collection of tapes and so on what we tend to find with the animated reconstructions and with how this one here is done the celestial toy maker with regards to still images piecing it together is that some of the missing episodes we still have the audio for mm-hmm. and and that could be twofold we have people at home who recorded the audio straight from the broadcast and i think we can hear it on this particular story there's one episode where the sound quality is lesser than the others because it was recorded in a different manner, apparently. And you can hear sort of the, the background, not background noise, but you can hear that the, it was just a microphone pointed at the television rather than a professionally recorded situation. Uh, and we also have the, two different types of tape. For a while, these shows were recorded on two different formats, and some of them were, were erased, whereas others were erased, but the audio was existent on the other format and kept in a separate file so those kind of all these these little bits and bobs dotted around in different historical manners of doing things back in the 60s and the 70s and other countries that had the rights to these programs they bought to show the tapes people have been trying to piece them together as best they can dan i guess haven't they it feels like the the audio visual equivalent of uh, putting together the terracotta warriors in china okay. um, i don't know if you've heard of those yeah, yeah, I'm aware of them, but purely because yeah, yeah. of how you explained it, them to me before. But I don't know how you mean with regards to assembling them. So when the Terracotta Warriors were found, it was you know there were thousands and thousands of statues all in in battle formation uh, that were buried along with uh, with an, an emperor. Uh, but one of the emperor's rivals, shortly after his his death and burial, the emperor's death and burial, uh, came and and smashed up the statues, leaving only uh, a hand, leaving only a handful of them intact. 
So the ones that tour around and the famous ones, they're, they're the ones that were intact. But since the 70s, there has been an ongoing project to rebuild and reconstruct the Terracotta Warriors from the pieces that were left. Um, okay. Now, I've been fortunate enough to see this firsthand, and you can't grasp the scale of it. it it's, it's an aircraft hangar that's been built over it with scientists and, and people just studying the pieces and trying to fit. It's like the world's biggest jigsaw puzzle. Right. That's amazing. Um, and that's what this feels like, except it's on a global scale, and you're trying to find the bits of film that fit the right audio and bits of audio that fit the right film. Um, with this, with Celestial Toymaker that we're covering, three of the four episodes have been lost. The final episode is on Britbox, which is a bit of a is a bit of a godsend, really, because throughout it all, I was throughout the first three episodes, just I should say, I was kind of enjoying having to fill in the blanks for myself visually, you know, just in my mind's eye, trying to imagine what it looked like, how, you know, how it would be. And then we actually get to see it Mm. in the final part, which kind of it confirmed. For example, I I knew that uh, Michael Goff playing the Celestial Toymaker would be fantastic because I'd seen him as Alfred in the Batman movies when I was a kid. Okay. And... I just had a, a gut feeling that he would be brilliant as the as a, as a villain. Obviously, he's a much younger man, so yeah, it's it's a really really interesting way to approach a um, to approach a recording, and it, it, I found it a little bit difficult at first. I don't know about you, I just I, I couldn't. I was struggling to deal with audio alone and and, and really basic bits of footage and, and the stills. Right. Okay. But so I got you know once you get over the hump and, and I just let my just let my imagination take over effectively, I found it much easier. See, uh, I had a conversation with Sharon because uh, I watched the first three episodes. No, sorry, I watched the first two episodes um, separately, and then came back a while later and watched episode three. I went straight into episode four on BritBox. Well, I, ITVX. Mm. I, I found watching. The, the, the black and white still images with the audio over the top. I, I was concerned going in. I'm not going to lie. I, I had a conversation with the wife about it and said that we're covering this story that, you know, three episodes are missing. It's going to be really interesting to do a podcast about it, but I'm not sure how I'm going to deal with watching that. I find it easier than I thought I was going to straight off the bat. Mm. It was still jarring. It was still a bit tricky. And what I found as well with uh, Daily Motion, that where you sent me the links to watch the episodes from, we have, especially in the early parts of the uh, the story, there are stage directions that say, you know, such yes. and such, such and such moves over to this place, or this person walks over to that corner, uh, or, or whatever. But the way Daily Motion has set it up is that the stage directions scroll across the bottom, like an, almost like a ticker reel, mm. but you don't, the, the very bottom of the word is cut off. Yeah. It was, again, I, th- I don't know if that was daily motion or the person who, who uploaded it or, or, you know, added who actually added it on because there was only the stage directions for that first part, mm. which did, which actually helped me get into it. And then I realized that I can get enough from the audio and the, and the dialogue to figure out what's going on. Yeah. But it, it yeah, did help that in, with the links we what we used, it really helped to sort of ease, ease into it. 
Well, this is it. Um, with regards to easing into it, by the time I got round to sort of later parts of the story, I, I, I wouldn't say I didn't notice anymore, but it wasn't as prominent in my mind that I was watching something in this format. Mm. And when we get to the, I mean, uh, the, obviously the way it works with, with a lot of classic, especially in, in the 60s and the black and white era, the end of an episode is also doubled up as the beginning of the next episode. Yeah. They sort of cross over a little bit of the footage. So at the end of episode three on Daily Motion, you have the still image of what's going on. But of course, at the beginning of episode four, you have, you know, it's back to normal. We, ha- we have the proper footage. So at the end of episode three, we actually have it faded into the the moving footage that comes from episode four. I mean, it's very well done, first of all. Mm. But I, I find that incredibly jarring because I'm sat watching this thing in a certain way. And I've lost myself in this by this stage. I'm not thinking, oh, I wish I had the real footage or anything. I'm used to this being this this format at this point. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Stephen and Dodo start moving around. I was a bit like, oh, shit, where'd that come from? Oh, well, 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 they actually can move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a really odd one, but I'm, I'm very glad we've done it because it was a really unique experience. And and I know, I know at least Rob will be happy with this, but I want to go back and watch more of the, uh, the stuff with the animations and the still images. Yeah, I, I do. I do. Um, I, I find the whole missing episodes thing absolutely fascinating anyway and there's a brilliant um i don't know if you'd call it a documentary i suppose it is a documentary but it's, it's effectively a youtube show uh with a guy talking through the whole process of what happened and he does it in a way that has like a continual uh ticking down number because originally there was over 300 episodes of doctor who missing including mm. some from the john pertwee era like, like thankfully pertwee is is intact and we're sadly we're missing quite a bit of Triton still. But this video, if I can find the video again, I will or send you a link down and I'll also chuck it out on the Doctor Who Pod uh, Twitter account. Where you'll also be able to find the links to the Daily Motion videos and for the first three parts of this tale. But it's absolutely fascinating how this person talks through in date order how they went from three hundred or and something episodes missing down to the the 97 that is still missing now and where these videos were found and literally talks you through the history of the missing episodes being discovered bit by bit and different people searching for them and so on it's really really interesting and i just find the whole thing fascinating because to to me it's again it's the unknown i guess Mm. there's aspects of this show that we all love that we may never actually see properly yeah, it's crackers when you think of it that way, isn't it? It's something that sort of pops into my head every so often. I just think we're, we're probably never going to see it in its entirety. Mm. And that's sad, but I don't know. It just it seems to add to the charm, even though I'm really, it really annoys me that they never thought about archiving, you know, archiving shows for future generations or anything like that. Just, oh, fuck it, we need the tape. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to, to again, to quote my, my daughter when I explained to her about the missing episodes, she said, they're stupid idiots. Mm. For not, and, you know, that's that's coming from a 13-year-old. Obviously, it's different time, though, isn't it? Budget restraints and so on. Um, yeah, different time, different time. I mean, the Celestial yeah. Toymaker itself, we mentioned budget restraints. It was hit with some itself. Uh, the story had three different people trying to effectively write the, the story. We had the original script writer, he left after falling out with various people. 
the I think the producer then took on some of the the writing and had to do rewrites for the show. Uh, mm. That didn't come. He didn't complete that before a third individual came in because of budget cuts. After they'd already finished the script and had to rewrite things to get it under budget. So I think not only do we get the the sort of disjointed, odd aspect to what we're watching because of the format we're viewing it in. I think it also at times does feel, especially the end, the last episode, does feel a bit disjointed in some aspects where it's had these rewrites and people have chopped and changed it about, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. It's it's one of these episodes where I'm going to be, I'm going to be calling it a good idea not executed perfectly. Okay. Because I really like this idea, and I'm gonna. It's a really weird connection to make in your head, but I'm a big fan of the Saw franchise, the movies, yes. the horror movie, the, well, the gore movies, really. And this is a similar premise, but done for sort of family friendly TV. You've got a malevolent, intelligent villain toying with people's lives for his own ends, putting them in, you know, in, in situations of survive or die. And that really, that really got me. You know, it's like the. the so yeah, with with this whole like, with that whole idea, they're having this sixty years ago and doing it in a sort of TV friendly way, you know, essentially for all ages, and it, that just really spoke to me. And I, I, I've said already about uh, Michael Goff as Celestial Toymaker. I think he was brilliant. Oh yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed him as well. Yeah, really good, really good. Um, you also, I suppose, have the added, I suppose, weirdness or, or twist to this story. In that, for episodes two and three, the Doctor's not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and William Hartnell was on holiday, apparently. Yeah, well, uh, this sorry, this story I read was actually going to be William, uh, potentially William Hartnell's uh, final final story. Uh, they hadn't thought of regeneration at this point. They weren't thinking about, um, you know, they were just going to replace him and not do, you know, not do anything else. But thankfully, Hartnell stayed on and, until his health declined uh, in, in in later years. So, yeah, this was potentially his last one. So, like you say, he was on holiday, but there was a, a sort of a real possibility that he might not have been coming back. Yeah, and that was part of the, the issues with regards to the change in the, the producers and so on. Uh, Hartnell, by this point, and again, I, I wasn't in the room, of course. I'm going by reports you read and, and stories you hear online and, and these documentaries and so on. Hartnell was getting... I suppose, increasingly grumpy and being more difficult to deal with. And he wasn't a fan of the cast changing. Not that I don't think he had an issue particularly with, with his new companions as, as actors or people, but he missed Barbara, Ian, Susan, and so on from the show. Mm. And when the production team changed, apparently he was a bit more open-minded to staying because the new producers shall we say, tolerated his nonsense a bit more. Yeah, so basically they gave, the, they let the baby have his bottle and indulged his bullshit a bit more. Yes. Yeah, I can say, well, you know, they extended it and ultimately it was it was good for the show because it gave them time to think of the, you know, regeneration angle. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was saying before about the premise of this as well, it's, that there are bits that are a bit ropey and, you know, it gets a bit, kind of bogged down in places because it could have been shorter. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. I think. But the, the actual premise of pass the tests or, you know, play the games, 
get to the goal and then then and effectively racing against each other is just so clever and gave so much scope for them to work with that it is just, I just find it's just so impressive. Like, you know, like we say in the early days of television, it's so creative and certain bits in this really do feel ahead of the time amongst all the stuff that's a bit less, you know, sorry, a bit more of its time, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I also think as well, I mean, we'll, we'll dive into it in a moment, but I also think as well that some of the stills or moments we get, some of the stills don't do the original script justice and i don't know if the if it was and again we, we won't know because we're, we're very unlikely to ever see it but there are certain you know script directions or the way the show was originally written to be that sound quite graphic sound quite you know morbid almost which we don't see because of the stills so it does kind of have that edge to it as well. And again, I don't know if that original story or those original thoughts would have made it to the final filming of it. We may never know. We may never see it. But it's really interesting as we go through, especially with, with the deaths of people in the chairs and so on. There's some quite graphic potential there, I think. But it's weird you mentioned the Saw movies because I was sat watching these thinking, I'm loving this this premise of beating the games and so on. And there were two things that popped into my mind with regards to overcoming the games and getting through and so on. Uh, and one was actually the Saw movies as well. So I'm, mm. I'm really glad to hear you say that because it means I'm not just you know going mad and thinking things <laughs> that aren't, aren't there. But secondly, the scene in The Five Doctors where the master skips across the chessboard and says, mm. try it, Doctor, it's as easy as pie. And, you know, and again, William Hartnell, it's not William Hartnell at the time, but it's, it's supposed to be the first Doctor there. It's, it's that, you know almost like a challenge, complete the game to survive kind of aspect. That popped in my head as well. Oh, no, now you say it, it's so obvious, but I never thought of that. But you're absolutely bang on. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how the mind works, isn't it, I guess. Oh, well, and there's also... Well, yeah. <laughs> and there was also a, a series of films. I don't know if it was called The Cube or something like that. Mm. And like sci-fi movies and... They were similar. They were very much they, it was like science fiction gore versions of Saw in a way that you had to complete certain tasks or get you know destroyed and so on. That popped in my mind as well. But obviously this predates all of that. So I, I, I really like the way this is the I, I, the the origin of the idea then I suppose, the, the original premise of what they're trying to achieve here, I really like. Yeah, absolutely. And and another thing as well, it has made me so excited for the return of the Celestial Toymaker in the 60th anniversary. Well, that was going to be something I was going uh, to touch upon, actually, because at the end of the story, so I suppose we're jumping about quite a bit here, but at the very end of the story, they even say then, you know, the, the Dodo says to the Doctor, we're not going to see him again, are we? That, that, that's it, Doctor, done with, sort of thing. And the Doctor says, oh, no, he'll, he'll always live on. My battle with him will never end. Yeah. And, and the Toymaker has popped up in... Uh, the audio versions and so on. But, I mean, has it been confirmed now that, you know, Neil Patrick Harris, his character is the Celestial Toymaker? Because it very much looks that way, but has it been confirmed? I believe, I believe so. I'm sure I saw it somewhere. Um, let me just see if it's listed on his credits or anything like that, just to confirm it. But while I'm looking for that, uh, the Toymaker was actually due to reappear in Colin Baker's second season. Okay. But it was, but it was scrapped and replaced with Trial of a Time Lord. 
uh, the story was called it was called the Nightmare Fair, and the toy it was the toy maker using arcade machines as an amusement fair to capture um, to capture the souls of people who played them. Oh yes, oh, that does ring a bell. And they, they, I, I'm sure I think they had like uh, artwork done for it and everything. That would have been. I think that would have been really, a really clever premise again, but computer games in '86. How would that hold up now? Look, I, I, I say '86. Well, you know, Colin Baker. Any time during Colin Baker's era, I guess. But how would that hold up now? I suppose with like the old. I mean, I, I love my retro games, but looking at them with a modern eye, looking back, they don't look great. Whereas I think these games here, because they are incredibly old-fashioned games. I think they still look great, even though this was filmed in the 60s. Mm. Do you know what I'd sort of liken it to? It's And it's, again, another weird conne- connection that's just gone into my head. It'd be like the Jumanji, uh, the modern Jumanji movies. Okay. So, so in the original Jumanji, it was a board game. Yes. And at the start of the first new Jumanji movie, you know, the one with The Rock and, and Karen Gillan, Doctor Who Connection, um you see the box that the game is in change itself into a, a cartridge video game. Okay. So like a top, you know, like a like an N sixty four or a Sega Mega Drive, put the cartridge in the in the top and you, you off you go, you play it. And then at the beginning of the movie it traps somebody inside as a cartridge video game. Mm. It then goes on into modern times and becomes so well, essentially just a modern console. Like with a with a, I think it's that way anyway. I can't remember, but effectively it's it's a it's a games console, and that's how they they update it. So that idea of of the toy maker initially having these very you know these physical games, where one of them is essentially kind of snakes and ladders, <laughs> you know, with the, with the rolling of the dice and moving along the board. Yeah. Um, for the toy maker to then come back twenty years later, twenty odd years later, and be using arcade games makes perfect sense to me oh yeah because, no, no. I, because it's the all idea. the time but then but then i think that would still hold up nowadays because it's long enough since then that those are considered retro you know people are buying the the old stand-up arcade cabinets to have in the house mm. so i think it's still i think it's still go down very well and uh, and I wish that had have happened because then who knows what we're going to get from the celestial toy maker this time around. You know, it could be it could literally be anything. They may go back to the roots of, of this with the physical games and all of that. But the the scope that they have for this villain, if indeed he is coming back, is just unreal. Oh yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Uh, I. The idea of the computer game side of things, I think, is is brilliant. But I think the the physical games and the fact that they're all quite dated in the way they look, the old-fashioned doll's house, the old-fashioned soldier, and all that sort of stuff. I think that they would always they would always be more creepy to me, just because of what they are, the nature of them. You know? Yeah, yeah, they are that like that doll's. Well, the doll's house is always creepy. Isn't it? I've I've seen too many horror movies set around Victorian times to <laughs> to not think they're creepy. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, I suppose we better have a quick scan through the story itself, then then Dan and uh, discuss what goes on and what we liked and what we disliked. Uh, 
I mean, the, the serial begins and the TARDIS is under attack. The Doctor has disappeared. We can hear his voice, but he's we can't see him. And there's a bloody great doll's house. It's kind of how we begin, isn't it? And that, here I get the first laugh and my first thought of, Dodo can be a bit dim, can't she? Oh, my God. Can she um, ever? Because the Doctor's in, intangible. They can only hear his voice. He's invisible. He can't touch anything. And, they, and he, has, he tells them to open the door. And she says, why do we have to open the door if you can't get in? Like, How else would they get out? Yeah. Yeah. I, oh. I don't know if Dodo... I've seen Dodo in other stories. Mm. For example, the gunfighters follows on from this. I've watched that. And she's better in that. Mm. So I don't know if this was just the way her character was written here. But she's a dumbass in this story. Oh, All the way through it. Especially towards the end. Oh my god. Just, just oh, I've ever really explained to her like ten times. And then does the thing she's specifically told not to do. Yeah, exactly. It's just oh it's madness. Um but this is where we get the first sight of the celestial toy maker and his in his toy box and all the you know, the doll's house and whatnot. And he takes a couple of clown figures. And then the one of the first sequences we get that's in in full, you know, motion is the enlarging of the clowns. And I thought that looked pretty damn good for the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are certain moments in this that I don't know if they have clips or if this is the person who's assembled the video piecing this mm. together for us. I'm not sure. But there are very, and they are very select and few and far between. But we do get those m- moments of movement in some of the stills, don't we? And this here, like you said, about the, the clowns coming up. Yeah, it, it is. It is pretty good. I mean, like you said, it's 60 year old television for crying out loud. I thought we we're in for a bit more of a prolonged, you know, sort of two stories converging later on kind of thing that we've seen before. But it was straight into it. The TARDIS is in the toy room. They get drawn outside because the scanner's off. And it sort of piques the doctor's curiosity, especially when he's suddenly made flesh again. Yeah, completely out of me. Yeah, but it just shows the, the sort of the whims and and the power of the toy maker. It because, did make me laugh though as well. Sorry, Dan, when when he does become you know uh, you're able to see the doctor again. I think it's Dodo that says, "Well, it probably is because she's a dumbass." Ah, doctor, I can see you. And the doctor's like, "Oh, can you? Good oh." And then they just move on. It's like, <laughs> it's yeah. so. It's so British and 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 nineteen sixties. It's like oh, jolly good show. I'm visible again. Wonderful. Let's carry on, shall we? It's 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 great. Yeah, it is really good. It is just like oh well, spiffing and tally ho. <laughs> I can be seen. <laughs> <laughs> it's but then, after all that sort of light hearted, you know, bit of daftness, we actually get to see the time maker. And I've already said that he sounds, he looks the part, but he sounds the part as well. It just sounds that he's got that real malevolence to him. And the TARDIS is just gone, just just vanished, and he sort of the sort of these notes, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was one of the ticker tape jobs, yeah. And then you know, there's these malevolent screens that hypnotic and trying to uh, control the minds, and naturally he cons Dodo into looking at one of them, and you know, showing her the day that her mother died, which is just horrific. Yeah. and they're trying to get back to the TARDIS, but the toy makers duplicated hundreds of them. And it's just already you're seeing the power of this this being and just how 
evil and, and cruel it can be. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. I, I do have a bit of an issue. Well, first of all, one thing that made me laugh a little bit here is that when we're seeing the visions on the screen, what Dodo and Steven are seeing these visions on the screen of things they've done in the past and the toy makers effectively saying, I've been watching you for a long time or whatever it may well be. The screens are on the belly of these beings. And I, my mind just went to the Teletubbies. Robo Teletubbies. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and secondly, you got Dodo going, oh my God, that's, that's what I found out my mama died. And sad, rightfully so. And But Stephen's like, oh look, there I am in Paris. Fantastic. He sounds really happy. <laughs> Yeah, well, throughout this, Stephen's not the brightest sparker. He's more, he's more switched on than Dodo, but he's just looking for a fight, and he gets re- he gets conned into anger quite quickly. Yeah. Because we see um, the clowns arrive, looking creepy, and they're, they're pulling pranks with you know the fake hand and crouching behind Stephen and pushing him over and all of that. But with the with the clowns, did you did you recognise either of them? Yes, I the fella I couldn't place where from but i know the face but the lady she is um renee's wife isn't she in lolo yeah carmen silvera from lolo mm. and with this with with her involvement i had a quick look into into the rest of the you know sort of the rough plot on the rest of the cast one thing i love in uh, one of my favorite tv series is the flash and in that they have one particular at least one particular character who gets to play several different versions of the same person throughout um, a multiverse. Okay. So it's Harrison Wells, and but basically every single version of him is intelligent. That's the common thread they all have. But they go mental, you know, they go mental with it. They have like a, a French version from one universe, a German version from another. One's like a, an Indiana Jones type character. And because there's an infinite amount of them, it's across a multiverse. And with this, I like the fact that they give Carmen Silvera and the guy whose name I forgot to, and the other guys whose name I forgot to write down, it gives them a chance to display a bit of range with different mm-hmm. characters across the episodes, uh, particularly the one who plays Cyril. Later on, he's the he's the Jack in the you know from the deck of cards, and then he's the <laughs> he's the the big fat schoolboy as he's called. Yeah, big fat jolly schoolboy. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> the, the the most scariest um, opposition they could face is a fat jolly school schoolboy, according to the toy master, which is a bit of an odd statement. But there we go. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have been told I'm quite scary in short trousers, <laughs> <laughs> especially when they're not yours. Um, <laughs> I was in there with somebody who was trying to wear them at the time, so that might have been it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. <laughs> Uh, the, the the toy master, sorry, toy maker has uh, toy master is pretty apt, I suppose, because you know I, I got master vibes from him at times during this show. But yeah, the toy maker has, like you said, tons of Tardises now. There's a, there's a line of these Tardises all over the place, and we basically get told that the toy maker has bought them there. Um, effectively, that his motivation is that he's bored. He hasn't got people to play his games. He wants the doctor there to be his constant opposition, I suppose, for these games he he creates. There are other people who we come across shortly that have been involved in certain games, have lost and are now stuck there. And that seems to be the fate he wants for Stephen and Dodo as well, Dan, doesn't it really? This is this is my one issue with the toy maker. He's saying that he's bored and, and he's got no one to play his games and all that. 
But that's because he makes them into toys when they fail. Mm. And it's kind of, you're kind of perpetuating your own bullshit. Yeah, stop fucking people up. Stop killing people, and you'll probably have a few mates. But but then again, you know, he's, he's an ancient, immortal, evil entity. He's not going to necessarily have that kind of grasp on morality. Mm. Or sanity, yeah. even. But in The Doctor, they, they allude to them having a past. Um, you know, past together. And he's just like... He just wants the Doctor's mind, essentially, pitted against his own. And that's why he gives him the trilogic puzzle. Yeah, I mean... Uh, that particular game... I appreciate it. It's it's of its time and it's you know some sort of high level puzzle to play and so on. But I'm looking at that and I'm thinking that's a crap game, mate. Yeah, well, it's it's similar to the um, it's similar to a thing called the Tower of Hanoi, um, where you can only move one piece per turn and you can only put a smaller piece on top of a larger one. Mm. And the goal is to get you know from point A to point in this case point C. And it is really bloody difficult. It's a real head scratcher, but it can. Like, I, I've tried it before and found myself getting quite obsessed with it. Okay. I don't think it's... I would have the patience. <laughs> well, yeah, because the, the solution is you just cheat, lift them all off, and move them over in one move. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting to see. You know, you've got a, a limit of moves of a thousand and twenty-three. Yes. But if the doctor fails, he stays there forever. And if but he has. If he finishes it before uh, Stephen and Dodo finish their games, they stay there forever. So he's already rigging it. Or try the the time maker's trying to rig it to um, you know to be in his favour. It's just another layer of what the hell you know. He's gone to all this elaborate plot just to get the Doctor there. Yeah, and you've got the aspect of the Doctor as well throughout the whole story, playing slowly as a toy maker accuses him of doing taking his time, not applying himself uh, quickly and so on. Uh, we're, we're assuming, obviously, to, to give Stephen and Dodo more time to get through what they've got to do. So mm. then he starts making the game jump ahead, like 200 goes at a time and stuff. And it's kind of like, similar to when we get into the last game with Cyril, it's very much stacked against our our heroes of the piece, I suppose, the Doctor, Stephen and Dodo, isn't it? Very much uh, not giving them the opportunity to play fair or even try and win these games properly. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But again, it's just another layer of of, of evil, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a very it's a very relatable one, though, because we've all encountered those people who are just bad losers and only want to play if they know they're going to win. Yeah. And it, and it makes it just makes them really infuriating. But one thing I did like is that the the toy maker sort of goads the doctor in by inferring that the doctor's mind is is going effectively in his old age. Yes. <laughs> and the doctor's like, "Well, fuck you, I can do it." <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It, but it's, again, it's very in character for that doctor, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the first game that they gave Stephen and Dodo is effectively, well they call it Blind Man's Bluff but it's a blindfolded assault course it's like a bit like something off a really early version of the Crystal Maze mm. Yeah, you've got to guide your partner haven't you, by using this sound effect from inside like a uh, almost like a glass case or glass chamber yeah, from inside a, That's exactly right, yeah, and you've got Joey and uh, I can't remember, Joey and Clara are the two clowns 
and Joey goes first and he absolutely pisses it. This I would have loved to have seen in, in real time. Yes. Because the stills themselves were amusing enough. Mm. You know, seeing him sort of swing from block to block and, and, and all the rest of it and going up the stairs and across the beam and, and all of that. And, yeah, I just wish I could have seen it all in, you know, in full motion because then we get we get an idea of just how rigged it is because of, uh, Joey, when Stephen's going, Joey starts moving the obstacles around. Yeah, and that's where the... I suppose the sound effect, the control, it's like you you make this noise once to tell your, your partner to turn right and so on. Mm. It has to come into a bit more of an effect, doesn't it? Because when Joey the Clown goes, he doesn't really get any direction from Clara, his his partner in this game. But Stephen has to have a lot because Joey's messing with the course, isn't he? Yeah, he's stacking the deck effectively. It's, mm. it, it's, it's a load of bullshit. And all the while, the Doctor is doing his, his puzzle with the uh, the toy maker giving him shit and you know and all that, the doctor then tries to warn Stephen and Dodo. So the toy maker just dematerializes him out of reality. Yeah. Again, just de- de- demonstrating this godlike power he's got, but he's using it to be a bit petty in in in, in how evil he is. But he gives the doctor back one hand, so he can play the game, which is kind of sinister. But also, again, with the, this disembodied hand making the moves, looked really good for 1963. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, and obviously, it, it's a tool to be able to write William Hartnell out of certain parts, of course. But I think it's very cleverly done. I mean, first of all, that just wouldn't happen nowadays, would it? Your main character taking a holiday during filming and they have to do something about it. It, it, it's, <laughs> it wouldn't happen. But the way I think they deal with it is they make the best of a bad situation i think in how they deal with the actor not being present mm. yeah i mean we've, we've had a couple we've had some dr light stories particularly in tenants era you know you think of blink yes the doctor was barely there um up until the final scene and even you know for all its faults um love and monsters mm-hmm. Peter Kidd, the doctor was barely in that all centered around elton and his mates, you know, you don't necessarily need the Doctor to have a good episode of Doctor Who. It's, no, no, just, incredib- just, it's just incredibly difficult to do. Um, and you've got to have the right framing, and I think this had the right framing. Because, you know, there's eight people, a cast of eight, in this in this serial. Mm. In a lot, and, and they, do, they deal with it and utilise it really, really well, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, Don't get me wrong, though. I feel that out of the four parts, the ones with Hartnell present are the stronger. Mm. You know, I mean, the end of the story will come to shortly. I'm not a massive fan of certain aspects of that. But when William Hartnell turns back up, I realised how much I missed him in the previous two episodes. Yeah, I do kind of get that. I think Michael Goff went a ways to alleviating some of that. But again, I think he's better when he's actually got uh, William Hartnell there to bounce off. Mm. So, yeah, in, like I say, you don't necessarily need the Doctor. I think I still think this is, is like I say, it's fairly well done, but you're right, the, uh, it's the middle two episodes where things sort of take a dip and get a bit of, get a bit sort of ploddy. Yeah, yeah, we may as well, we're virtually there now, aren't we? I mean, effectively... 
Joey has to redo the assault course when they realize that his blindfold was not a blindfold at all. He could see what he was doing. So they accuse him mm. of cheating. He has a go. He falls and basically dies. And Clara, the other clown, collapses and, and they both effectively disappear. And I love that because, again, reoccurring and popping back up again. It's that whole, I suppose, God-like control, as you mentioned, Dan, that the, the toy maker has. And that he can just do that with his his aides, his his helpers, I guess. But the TARDIS, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, play. Yeah, spot on. But the big thing is that uh, Stephen and Dodo have then reached the TARDIS. Also, they think they open the door and it's just an empty shell, and there is a note there with a riddle, and that's the end of the first episode, isn't it? Yeah, the riddle was four legs, no feet, a bond, no lack. It carries no burden on its back. Six deadly sisters, seven for choice. Call the servants without voice. Mm. Yes. And interestingly enough, they show that at the end of the episode as well, don't they? Mm. They bring yeah, they it up do. on the screen rather than just have the cast, which I've I like that. Touch. Yeah, because that is designed to, obviously designed to get people thinking. Yes. And to plant it in the mind that they'll be thinking, you know, talking about it for a week maybe. What does it mean? Where are they going? Et cetera, et cetera. And another thing I like at the start of the second episode, Hall of Dolls, the show the uh, the Doctor's move counter, and he's on four hundred and twelve. Mm-hmm. Just again, it's just adding those little bits of pressure and a bit more, a bit more drama, you know, a bit more tension. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, again, a countdown, or in this case, I suppose a count up would be the correct phrase. It always adds to the tension of anything, doesn't it? It's it's quite an old trope used in television or movies, and it, it, it always is effective, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And again, with, with the toy maker, like you say, just arbitrarily skipping things on. The Doctor's four hundred and fifteen moves in, you know, at the start of the, or shortly after the start of this episode. Um, the toy makers are shown him that he's reserved them a place, you know, in the dollhouse for Stephen and Dodo. He runs through again the conditions of the game and the stakes, and the toy makers decides to make him mute until he reaches the penultimate move because the Doctor had, to- had tried to, again, communicate with them. So he skips it on to move 444. He, he takes, you know, nearly he takes nearly 30 moves off him. Mm. Yes, uh, and you can hear as well the the moments with William Hartnell uh, talking. His sound, his speech is off compared to the rest of the episode because Hartnell's parts for a couple of these episodes, this one being one of them, was recorded in uh, separately because he was going on holiday. So it was just a voiceover clip that they used, whereas everyone else was actually being filmed and recorded in the studio itself. So the sound, there's a noticeable difference, isn't there, between Hartnell's moments, Hartnell's lines, and everyone else's when that happens, isn't there? I didn't pick up on it. I just assumed it was because we were watching on Daily Motion. It was a bit dodgy. Oh, okay. (laughs) Speaking of Daily Motion, by the way, my goodness, I'm so sick and tired of seeing adverts for, you know, ladies' sanitary towels and so on. How many times have they got to play that? Uh, about every 10 minutes. Okay, it does my nut, mate. It does my nut. But there we go. Yeah. Pretty much. But yeah, we, uh, about this point, the, the uh, Stephen and Dodo are going through to the next game and Stephen's quite rightly saying, you know, mistrusting anything he sees and hears. And we get the uh, we get the king and, king and queen of hearts. But it's, yeah. it's Carmen Silvera and the guy from before. And just looking at the stills, I think Carmen Silvera would be or would have been absolutely perfect for this sort of pantomime villain role. 
Yes. Yes. Again, it's a real shame that we don't get to see much of it, isn't it? You know, I think that's going to be a running theme as we talk about this story about wishing we could have seen more of the actual footage, I guess. But this is where we come to a game that, well, first of all, we come to a little bit of a dialogue that hasn't aged very well in the slightest. Um, <laughs> the King of Hearts during this episode, um, he uses the, the rhyme eeny, meeny, miny, mo," But he uses it in a very old-fashioned way with a certain word that is not very good. And that oh God, did he? Yes. Oh, yes. God, I didn't even hear that. Yeah, it's not a good look whatsoever. But again, different. I'm not saying it was right or wrong back then, you know, but, well, no, I am. It was wrong. But it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a different time, I guess. But, my goodness, that came out of nowhere for me. I was like, whoa. You know, that's, a, that's quite a word to be dropping in there, but okay. But, effectively, now we have a battle here with various dolls and chairs and the next two episodes we have we have two different games to go through i find that there's so much filler in these episodes Mm. this is where i agree with what you said earlier dan in that it could have been so much shorter and probably wouldn't have had to have filmed the episodes without hartnell being there to be fair yeah so with this there is a lot of filler and there's a lot of back and forth in and they're trying to have amusing exchanges with the king and queen and you know they're, they're obvious marital problems and bits and pieces like that when what they should have been doing is having more of the joker and jack because jack sort of swans in and just saying oh is there you know is there, is there anything to eat is there a buffet and the joker's there he's a pig and he says what was that he says give him a fig Yes. You know, a, a bit more of the Joker and Jack would have probably been genuinely funny. The sort of the bumbling king and the bumbling racist king, um, <laughs> you know, dropping comments and his wife saying, what was that? And nothing, dear. You know, that got old very, very quickly. It did. It did. Um, um, not, the tr- not- sorry, I was, I was just going to say as well, they were trying for competition and, and peril because now Dodo and Stephen are supposed to be facing effectively four people mm-hmm. but it never felt like there was any real danger because there was so little interaction between the two because to extend the, the episode and, and keep all this bullshit going they just separated them time and again yeah yeah i mean the, the gist of it is that there is how many chairs is it is it seven chairs in total uh something like that i think so yeah, i can't remember yeah, so, yeah, so yeah, seven chairs, yeah. Yeah, and uh, a certain number of these chairs are effectively booby-trapped, I suppose, for want of a better phrase. that They're, they're going to kill you in different manners. And you, it's trial and error, and you have to try and just pass through without getting killed, I guess, is the gist of it, isn't it? Yeah, and um, Stephen and Dodo go into another room, find the dolls. Um, you know, there's cupboards that look like the TARDIS and that there's just been painted and they take out the first ones to, to figure it out while the king and queen are trying to figure out the, the chairs in the other room. They get caught, so they say, well, you have two of these dolls, we'll take two in here. And then it, and, you know, specifically saying to Dota, don't tell them about the other dolls because then they'll have an advantage. Just hoping and praying that they don't think to look in the cupboard mm-hmm. when there's nothing else in the room. Yeah. And then they just sort of faff about. Yeah, that's it. Um, we do see these dolls getting 
I suppose, killed off, though, don't we, from the different yeah. chairs. And this is some of the things I wish that I could have seen the original footage of. I and mean, we've got the stills of some of them and, and a little clip as well of certain aspects of others. But we have the, the one doll is electrocuted. Yeah. Uh, and another one, the chair spins round and round and round and throws them against the wall. Quite graphic, that, I thought. Yes. And this is the thing that gets me, that some of these could be incredibly graphic. And there's one in particular I'm going to come to in a moment that the original script, original uh, stage direction, seems to have been wanting to be more graphic, but I'm not sure it's what we got. Uh, one doll loses its head. Another one just that's, vanishes. That's the one that was being shaken, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And um, basically, we, we end up with a scenario where Dodo is in a chair and the toy maker tells the doctor, oh, she's sat in the wrong one. That's the freezing chair. And she starts, you know, basically chilling and can't move and so on. But the, the thing that I want to come to is the king and the queen. They get into a chair mm-hmm. together. And from what I read, what would it have been yesterday, day before maybe? The original direction, original stage notes, I'm not sure the correct term, production notes, whatever, uh, they basically get squashed in this chair. Mm. The chair is supposed to crush them together. And apparently lots of liquid, effectively to be blood, was supposed to come spraying out of the chair up against the wall and so on, symbolising that these two, two have been crushed to their death and all the blood was spraying out everywhere, which would have been incredibly graphic for that time of day. You know, so what was it? Five 45. I think this went out on a Saturday Mm. afternoon. That would have been incredibly graphic for that time in television. And uh, I'm assuming it fell, uh, fell foul of some of the budget restraints that, and the, and the rewrites at the end of the episode. But I think that that sounds incredibly graphic and gory and, and quite scary as well. It would have been one of my favourites. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I, that is sort of on the less horrific side of things, when the doll gets electrocuted, that's in the room with Stephen and Dodo. But Jack's asleep, and he wakes up and wanders off because he thinks he smells crumpets toasting. Oh, uh, yes. yes. I was like, it's quite yeah, that amused me. It's quite, yeah. It is quite... I thought it was, it's, it's gross when you think about it, but when he's just like, ooh, crumpets, he's just like, oh, that's quite funny. Oh yeah, don't go. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll get the humour in it. In it, but I'm, again, I'm trying to place it as being. I mean, this is still Doctor Who, especially in its early days, was a was a aimed at children. I mean, now I feel it's more of a family show. It goes out a touch later on on the, the on the schedule. It there is enough there for adults now, and also it's still written in a way where children can enjoy it too. I mean, it's more of a family show now. But back then, it was the whole premise of the show being created was to aim it at children and be educational. This is only a year, a few years into its run. It's that thing of some of that is quite, quite graphic for a, a tea time mm-hmm. program with kids. It is, yeah, and uh, you can understand why it, why it ultimately didn't make it, either for budgetary or for you know sort of standards and practices reasons, really. Mm. Yeah. Um, the, the the other bit that annoys me at this is that Dodo decides to pick a chair and it's the freezing chair and Stephen for, for all we've said about Dodo being a dumbass because you know she gives the game away about you know about various bits and pieces as well but Stephen's idea of helping it isn't to pick to touch her and drag her out of the chair he just tells her to stand up and fight the cold 
and not physically help her. He's holding her hands, so they're obviously not that cold. He could just drag her out of the chair. And they basically, they basically free Dodo through the power of friendship. Mm. You also got to remember as well, it's referenced quite a bit on this story, how bloody strong and macho Stephen is. So why didn't he just rag her out of the chair? Because he's dumb. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> because he's dumb. Oh, he's so self-centred. He's just like, you know, he might have all the strength, but he's not exactly gallant, is he? He just, just leaves her there. And yeah, yeah just what one thing that does make me laugh is that they try and the king and queen quine, uh, try and con the joker into sitting on one of the uh, in one of the chairs and they just say, <laughs> just says, and they call me a fool and just fucks off. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> and so does Jack. Jack just scuttles off after him, yeah. and the king just looks at him as your son, I think, my dear. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake. Mm, yeah, that's not a good look. And even then, the queen tries to double cross the king by tossing a double headed coin. Yeah, but at the same time, he suggested uh, drawing matches, drawing lots, didn't he? And she yeah. was like, oh, no, no, no. I've done that with you before. I know you rig that. So they're just as deceitful to each other, aren't they, really? Yeah, it, it's. there's a couple of little bits that were quite amusing, but yeah, otherwise this was just dull. Mm. Apart, yes. apart from, obviously, like you know, the bits we mentioned, it was just a lot of chuntering about and pissing about. It could have been... Could have been do- they could have done the games from episodes two and three in one episode. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Ah, oh, there we go. I mean, speaking of episode three, we're getting into that now, aren't we? Uh, that Stephen and Dodo have found another empty TARDIS, which Dodo is amazed about. She cannot believe that it's another empty one. It's like, come on, love, wake up a bit, eh? Yeah, you know? a bit naive. Yeah. Uh, the toy maker has given them another riddle before oh, we head yeah. to episode three, don't we, Dan? Hunt the key to fit the door that leads out on the dancing floor. Then escape the rhythmic beat or you'll forever tap your feet. And they turn around and see that the bodies of the king and queen are just playing cards again. Mm. And here's where you get the the sheer dumbassery of things. Because earlier in the episode, Stephen had tried to yell, you know, command the dolls. By, you know, because they say the the servants without voice, so the dolls are meant to be used in the game. Dodo doesn't bother till the end. She yells for the doll and they start dancing the way out. It could have all been done so much more quickly. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, speaking of getting done quicker, ah, uh, dear me, the soldier and the cook in Mrs. Wiggs' kitchen. Oh, God. Sergeant Rugg and Mrs. Wiggs. Bloody hell. But effectively, Stephen and Dodo end up in this kitchen and they have to find the key in the kitchen. Again, pretty crap game but it is what it is and the the cook and the soldier are effectively there to slow them down distract them and so on i guess but they bicker back and forth dodo tries to engage in a conversation with them and it's i think that this 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 third episode i mean what are we talking here it's like 23 24 minutes long something like that i think 15 minutes of that at least is this bullshit in the kitchen uh, it's good after the show yeah because it's just you know Dodo tries to get around Sergeant Rugg by you know saying oh he must be very brave and all and you know complimenting his uniform and all that and he's just an old lech and just you know and it's just so much bang average almost sitcom bickering mm. But bad. It's just, it, yeah, it's just 
it's just crap. It's so dull, you know, they're fucking about, messing about, and then they uh, oh, yeah. It's not really worth talking about, because after all that, the keys are the pie. Uh-huh. And you've got you've got Stephen getting wound up by him, and Dodo saying, why are you getting wound up? They're not even real people. Which is a fair point. Yeah. Even though that's what they're, you know, they're there meant to do, and she's sort of, she's now decided that she's going to play along. Um... And it all, there's so many, there's multiple times as well where they're all talking over each other and it's it's just an audio mess. Just, yeah. Just, yeah, it, it wasn't amusing and it wasn't that, it wasn't fun, to be honest. This is the first time that I really, oh, don't go wrong, I wish I could have watched the whole thing in its proper format with the proper footage. But this is the first time I really wished that we had the proper footage because, as you said, it was just an audio mess. Some of these uh, black and white early days in Doctor Who, we do get that thing of people talking over the top of each other, people shouting back and forth, and it does end up a little bit confusing and just it ends up just a crescendo of noise as opposed to anything clear or, or being able to pick out certain parts of dialogue. That happens a lot with Ian and Barbara and Susan and the Doctor arguing. I mean, we looked at Edge of Destruction. There was aspects of that in that story. But here, you get a lot of that. But I think the fact that we're looking at a picture makes it even worse, you know? Yeah, it, it does not help whatsoever. Because you, you don't even have the mouth movement. Or you, can't even, you can't even see the physical stuff to go along with the bickering. You know, if, it, if it's physical slapstick and you've got all this audio going on, it makes it more tolerable, but it's, and I don't want to be too judgmental because it's the stills, but it's it's the one bit where I really felt it hand what we were watching. Yes, yes, for that day. Uh, okay, um, effectively, after the key has been found, Stephen and Dodo now are in a room with a dance floor, and they have to get to the TARDIS on the other side of this dance floor. And there's lots of very creepy-looking dolls there, ready to dance away. And now this, sorry, this, I wish I'd been able to see in full motion because even the stills looked creepy. Oh, yeah. So the the stills take away from it, but leave me wanting more. Mm-hmm. The previous scene that we talked about, the stills took away from it, but I wanted it to make it tolerable. You see what I mean? Yes, yeah. I, th- I think this would have been brilliant. I really do. Yeah, and I also think as well it would have helped when we get to the point of uh, the sergeant and Stephen. Uh, well, Stephen tries to make a dash across the dance floor for the TARDIS, doesn't he? And ends up yeah. being forced to dance. I feel that that needed the motion, the, the, the footage, to really tell that story. And again, it's no, it's no slight upon the actors or, or anything like that. They're obviously not writing the story or acting the story out thinking this is how it's going to be watched. You have the motion there when, the, when they're producing the original program, of course. So there's no slight upon them, but the footage that we're seeing, the, the, the format we're seeing it in, I feel that was needed a little bit there as well. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, and the whole, so the whole thing is the, it, this is the force of will effectively. Because Stephen gets caught, Dodo tries to help him, she gets caught. Um, you get Sergeant Rugg and Mrs. Wiggs, they're celebrating, you know, so they're finally done it because they've been given a bollocking by the top, uh, the toy maker. Mm. So Wiggs says he'll run for the TARDIS and she should dance, but they both get caught. 
And then, this, again, we'd need to see this physically, see this in motion to know how it happens. But Stephen and Dodo somehow end up dancing with each other and then break free as they reach a point near the TARDIS. Yeah, I think it was like a sort of distraction thing, wasn't it? And getting close enough to grab each other to dance together and uh, manipulate where they're heading. and Which sounds mm. a very clever way of beating that game at its own rules, I suppose, manipulating the game in their favour. But again, without seeing it, you're never quite 100% sure of how it worked, are you? No, exactly, and that's... Because it left me intrigued intrigued just from the audio, I class it as a success. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then again, we get some good effects because after they finish the game, they get to the TARDIS and it's another fake. Um, Sergeant Rugger Mrs Wiggs gets shrunk down again, which again was good effects for 1963. Um, I am impressed with some of the uh, some of the special effects on show. Yeah, I mean the thing is with regards to that though, I don't know are these special effects from the time, or are these put in by the person who made the video. I don't think it matters given what we're watching. Oh no, no, it doesn't matter. I'm just um, curious as to, as to where it came from. If 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 the ones that somebody's done on the back of it, they've done a very good job making it look like it was '63. Mm. Because we've seen similar effects before, um, obviously from a bit further on, like when we looked at um, Carnival of Monsters. Yes. So it could be an early version of that. So I, I choose to believe that it was part of the, uh, part of the effects. Because it's the only other time we see actual footage. It is, it is from, the, you know, from the clips from the show itself. So, yeah, I'm choosing to believe it. Um what I did like as well at the end of this is the toy maker that say that the doctor forgets he can see him, implying that the doctor's doing something, you know, foolish or you know, making some obscene gesture or something like that. And uh, I like how he sort of threw a bit of a shit fit at himself for being foolish. Right, interesting. Rug and Mrs. Wiggs. But then we get that ridiculous line about we must find a more deadly character, the most deadly character of them all, because he looks so innocent, a fat, jolly schoolboy. Yeah, dear me. And it's 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 a character they say, oh, my name is Billy, but you call me Cyril, which makes no sense at all. And Well, hang, hang on. I had a mate called Simon and we called him Cyril. Mm, I don't okay. know why. Yeah, so. I um, apparently the BBC had to apologise to the people who created the Billy Bunter character because it was so similar to that I read as well, which is interesting. Because that's what this is, isn't it? It's a rip-off of the Billy Bunter character, isn't it? Oh, is that it? I, yeah. I, I forgot Billy Bunter existed. Um, it was fun. I did find it quite amusing when he's he's got the spider on a string and the uh, you know the shock buzzer in his hand for the handshake and, and stuff like that. Um, but Dodo's very quick to say he didn't mean any harm. She's a knob. Far too trusting. But one thing I did like here, who the guy who played Cyril was fantastically creepy towards the end oh, of this, yeah. show, this episode. I thought they I thought he was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when he, when he says he wants to be like Stephen when he's grown up. <laughs> and he's just, just, just <laughs> and he's obviously like he's obviously several years older than Stephen. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it, it is good. Uh, and this is where we get the the footage restarting, I suppose, the video, uh, the, the proper motion footage beginning at the end of episode three as it goes into episode four. And that's when I said it, it kind of threw me a little bit because I was really, by that point, I was used to what I was watching, you know? Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. But it was so much fun seeing, getting to see Cyril 
play out his creepy nonsense and seeing the toy maker in full flow. It, it it just it made it for me. It made the it made getting used to the stills all the more worth it. Mm, yeah, I think this. Then I mean, the, the episode four is called the final test, and the Doctor is nearing the end of his game. And Stephen and Dodo have to basically play a game of snakes and ladders crossed with hopscotch to get to the TARDIS. I think this looks very good. Yeah. The, the set, the way it's laid out, the, the big sort of stepping stones they have to jump across and so on. The, the background with the moving parts and the, the android Teletubby effort stood there just watching the TARDIS in the background. I think this looked really, really good. Yeah, it was a fantastic set. Those triangles on the floor that they have to jump from, the the spinning, uh, sort of the spiral cylinder that has all, you know, registers their, the rolls of the dice and all the rest of it. And the fact that it had a clear set of rules that weren't overly complicated, but then they kept adding rules that make the game more difficult as they go along. Mm. I thought it was fantastic. So basically what they get is each person takes a die, throw them on the triangles and move the move forward the the number of sort of the number that they roll, and they've got the counter there to make sure no one can cheat. And the first to reach uh, reach fourteen is the winner. But the floor is electrified, so yes. if you if you go off the triangles, you'll be killed instantly. Again, very yeah. much a sort of saw a saw trap vibe to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and we then get um, Cyril changing the rules every other go as well don't we he, he's he's blatantly just cheating to try and get himself the victory and there are aspects of this that i really liked for example coming towards the end of that when he pretends to be hurt mm. and dodo again being misgullible is like oh we gotta look after him gotta make sure he's okay hold on a minute this is red ink not blood it's it was a bit crappy from dodo but at the same time i liked the idea that he was willing to fake an injury he's also put down some powder on one of the triangles to make it slippy which is effectively you know hoping hoping someone falls to their death yes it's murder but they say that the time maker says that cyril hates losing and makes sure that he never does Mm. and it's just they drop that in and then it's like he skips it to move 930. So we're getting ever closer. And all the while, the toy maker saying how great it'll be to have the doctor there for eternity. And Dodo and Steve will make great dolls. He's got the bed set up, you know, in the dollhouse. And all the while, they're playing this game with this annoying tosser who keeps like revealing a rule. Like if you land on an occupied triangle, the person there has to go back to the start. And then Stephen goes back to, oh, by the way, you miss a turn as well. It's just. It's just a proper snivelling little horrible git, isn't he? We, we've all, like I said before, we've all known those people in life, particularly as kids, where they only want to play if they're going to win, and if they start losing, they throw a tantrum. Yeah, or, yeah, or start right. trying to change the rules, or if, you, or if they're losing playing football, they'll take the ball and go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, yeah. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the game aspect of this. Yeah, yeah, me, I'm me. Uh, with regards to the powder, then, and this is again, I think something that is quite graphic. So I keep going to call him Billy Bunter, but that's not right, is it? Cyril uh, is hopping back and forth on these triangles, and we're getting down to the the very end of the game. Both people, what Cyril and and Dodo, only need a certain role to make it to the TARDIS, and so on. He slips on his own powder. Is he and, celebrating? 
It's I yes. won, I won. Exactly. And he slips on his own powder and falls to his death. And then we got a shot of this guy dressed as a schoolboy burnt to a crisp on the floor smoking. And I've, again, it comes back to that's pretty graphic stuff for a, yeah. you know, that I time of day. On a, yeah. Well, so was he. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, again, I thought it was really, it looked brilliant. And yeah, just very graphic for the time, I think. Mm. It, th- this episode definitely comes on stronger to, uh, than two and three. Mm. Um, and it's because Cyril is a great character. I think he's a cracking character, you know, like you say, snivelling little villainous turd. Um, and But even the toy maker, because the toy maker appears at one point, because Stephen just starts going for the TARDIS. And he says, you've got to play by the rules. And there's an invisible barrier that only yields, uh, yields to people playing by the rules. And with that, Cyril gets a little catapult out of his pocket and fires a rock at the back of Stephen's head. <laughs> it's just such a shithouse move. Yeah. And But there's a great exchange with the Doctor and the Toy Maker as well, because the Toy Maker decides to give Doctor his speech back uh, early because he's so sure he's going to win. But the Doctor just doesn't rise to his taunting and his frustration. And he says, you know, the Toy Maker well, there's no point in giving you the power of speech if you stay quiet. And the doctor says, you seem to say enough for the both of us. In any case, I'm busy. And, you know, says something about Cyril won't do well when Stephen catches up with him. And that just provokes the toy maker and he moves it on to move 1,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I, I really enjoyed these little exchanges and, and going from the doctor and the toy maker to, uh, to the game itself. And so after Cyril explodes, though, we get another moment of Dodo being a fucking Dodo. <laughs> okay. Because she rolls the four to win the game. And she's like, I won, I won. And she she's just seen Cyril slip and fall to his death. Yeah. And she had the explanation from Stephen that he slipped on the powder that Cyril put there. And she nearly goes over and gets killed. What? And, he, and, and Stephen even says, I've just told you about the powder. Yeah. Come on, wake up. You know? <laughs> yeah. Just for God's sake. But even then, you know, they get to the TARDIS and the Toy Maker, even in conceding that they've all won their games, the Toy Maker's just sat there looking sinister because he's got another trick up his sleeve. And we're at the penultimate move for the Doctor. They all get reunited. The Doctor's got his body back and all the rest of it. And that's where the Toy Maker's saying, only I can win. If I lose, the Doctor and I go down together. Because as soon as the Doctor finishes the Trilogic puzzle and wins the game, the toy maker, the world, this world, the toy maker's created, and everything in it ceases to exist. Yeah, so I mean, effectively, uh, at the time, I'm thinking, well, that's daft because you you set it up that if you lose this game, you die. But obviously, we get the conversation later on where the doctor says, "Oh no, he'll always come back," and the power of the mind and all that sort of stuff. But when I'm watching this through, I'm thinking that sounds a bit silly. Why would you set up a game? You look at how manipulative they've been throughout this whole story and how they stack the odds in their favour and so on. Why would you have the end of a game being that everything you've created, including yourself, vanished? It's the ultimate fuck you from a bad loser. Yeah, I guess. Because he takes losing so badly and not getting his own way so badly that he'd rather he'd rather burn it all down and start again in the pursuit of something that where he can never lose. Mm. But he even says he's already bored of this, so... Look, there comes a time where he just wants to start again. 
it's like we, we rib a mate of mine for the amount of times he's restarted um, the video game Skyrim because he can never settle on a type of character he wants to play or the way he wants to play it or the avenue of the story he wants to go down because there's just too many options. Okay. This is like the, the cosmic evil version of that that the Toymaker's suffering. He's got all this power. He wants to play his games. He wants to have someone to play, to play with, but he doesn't want to lose. But he wants to be challenged enough to keep him interested. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Uh, we then get a little bit of something that I wasn't overly fond of. I think mm. the end of this was not handled brilliantly first of all the doctor is there saying that the toy maker can drag them down with him unless they use the power of their brains which i don't think is the best line of dialogue we've ever had is it no it's pretty poor yeah because especially they don't actually end up using the minds to well they do in a sense but it's not exactly a massive outwitting of the celestial toy maker that that finishes the episode is it no no effectively the doctor shouts at the last piece in his game to move to the final position it needs to for him to have completed what he is he is working on knowing that when that happens the world ceases to exist so he sets the TARDIS up to take off just in time and has to mimic the toy maker's voice to get that piece to move because they'll only listen to him and not the doctor himself and then we see the that world disappear and everyone's laughing and joking on the TARDIS. It's kind of for how good this story was, and I suppose it's a bit of a spoiler alert. I, I really did enjoy this, but how good this story was, I felt the ending, it didn't feel in line with everything else we've seen. It felt a bit rushed. It felt a bit anticlimactic in a way. It felt a bit convenient maybe as well, Dan, what did you think? I can see where you're coming from with it. It is rushed. It's quite an abrupt ending because they go through this whole previous spiel of and, and sort of debate about how they're effectively in a stalemate. Stephen even offers himself out to make the final move and sacrifice himself so that the Doctor can and, uh, and Dodo can escape. What a fucking hero. Quiff and all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's you know, saying we can't just talk our way out. I actually, because I was sat there thinking how they're going to get out of this because I didn't see a way to do it. I was just thinking, well, what the hell are they going to do? And even when he said, we're going to talk our way out of it, mimicking the toy maker, I thought was actually quite clever because he's, because it's using the rules against him, against him again. He's it's sort of a hoisted by his own petard kind of thing. The toy maker has set these rules and set up this world, but hasn't thought of what if somebody mimics me? What if somebody uses the voice activation against me? Mm-hmm. And it's his own hubris that has effectively, and his own arrogance that has effectively led to his downfall. Yeah, it, it, I, th- I think I, 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 this, I think it was actually quite a clever ending. It's not the best thing I've ever, I've ever seen. You know, in terms of, of wrapping something up, but I've seen a lot worse. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, we do get a little bit afterwards, don't we? Where. In the TARDIS, Dodo produces the bag of sweets that she was given by Cyril earlier on mm. as, as a form of distraction. And Stephen's like, oh, why don't you just throw them out? He's like, God, you're such a miserable bastard. Calm down. You're out of there. You're fine. Don't worry about it, you know? And the doctor's mm. like, oh, I'll, I'll try one. 
and then turns around in pain, clutching his face, and that's the end of the episode. I suppose in a way it's a mini cliffhanger. What's happened to the Doctor going into the, the next story and so on. Um, a little bit of a spoiler. The next story is the gunfighters, and what's happened is the Doctor has hurt his tuff, and the TARDIS materialises in the Wild West, and the Doctor is looking for a dentist. So I, 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 quite, I quite like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good it's a good cliffhanger, but then it's it's quite a good misdirection as well. Yes, yes. You know, it's but this is where we get the line before the sweetie thing, um, where they're saying there will be other meetings with him in another time, and I haven't been able to ascertain whether or not Neil Patrick Harris is the celestial toy maker, but it seems incredibly likely. And what a great little sort of cliffhanger that then becomes—a sixty-year cliffhanger, you know, a sixty-year foreshadowing. Yeah. Oh, can you imagine if they take that clip as well and put it in the the, the special this year? They kind of have to, don't they? I think so. I think so. Having only had the Celestial Toy Maker in in the audio format, surely you have to bring that in. And I, I would love to see him use clips of, of Michael Goff and and William Hartnell. Actually, you know, sort of a bit of going back and forth to to establish the previous, you know, the previous with them. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it'd be brilliant. I mean, with regards then to the audio versions, Big Finish, and all that sort of stuff, there's Celestial Toymaker stories in that. Mm. Is it possible, do you think, to throw back to some of those as well, if that is the case? Or is that maybe a bit niche for the larger audience? It's possible to reference them, yes. I won't okay. understand them. But I know, you know. But I know the I know the present in the canon. But yeah, definitely they can mention it. You know, the doctor can say, you know, I encountered him, you know, many lifetimes ago, and fl- you know, think about have flashbacks to when he was, you know, when he was William Hartnell, and then maybe just because Tennant's very good at Tennant's doctor was always very good at surmising things very quickly. Uh-huh. But doing away, with, you know, doing him in a way without I've, I've met him before. Have the flashbacks and then and then saying similar to when he saw Davros when he's talking about the time war in in uh, Journey's End that we looked at and says you know I saw your ship flying to the jaws of the nightmare child. He's he's suddenly surmised how how Davros died very quickly and which like oh that happened okay then yeah it can be done and I I think if Neil Patrick Harris is the toy celestial toy maker I think it should be done yeah. Yeah. I, I, the reason I ask is because obviously that there is that possibility to do that, but also um, at this at this point of recording, it's you know, we're in June here. The specials are still a few months away, but we're getting the adverts now, the trailers, and so on. It's touching upon different worlds in one of the stories because there's this white thing with big eyes that a character, I think it might be Donna, pokes in the eye in one of the episodes, <laughs> in one of the um, trailers, and apparently that is to do with Doctor Who magazine or Doctor Who comic book. That's a, that's a character from that. Right. So that's an extra sort of uh, part of the same universe, part of the same Doctor Who world, I guess. That's something I'm unfamiliar with because I'm not aware of what that is beforehand, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, that'll be dead interesting. I've not actually seen that trailer yet. There's a couple of trailers I need to catch up on. Okay. Uh, yeah, apparently it's to do with, I think it's to do with a comic book. I'm not 100% sure, but there, it is a throwback to something that I've not seen or read. So, But mm. there, there is that throwback aspect. But yeah, there we go. So, uh, William Hartnell's story for our fourth season of the Doctor Who pod. I suppose, in summary, Dan, what are you thinking? 
I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the experience of going back and, and looking at the stills and, and having to piece it together in my own mind. It did drag in the middle. Mm. Um, I would I wouldn't rush to watch the first three parts again because it, well, it's because two of them are, are a bit draggy and ultimately a bit dull. But I would watch the final test again. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so it's. I feel a bit. I'm trying to give it my numerical sort of thing that I'm trying to keep track of, and I'm looking at my previous ones, and I realise I'm not giving any given anything below a six. <laughs> right. Okay. And it's kind of one that I'm having to pass out because if I'm saying the Celestial Toy Makers are five, that doesn't mean it's bad. It means it's it means it's average. It's just everything else we've watched this season has been above average or better. Yeah. Okay. So I'm torn, I'm torn between a five and a six. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I think that there's some great characters in this. The toy maker himself, for a start. I get a bit annoyed with Dodo and Steven at times, but they weren't terrible all the way through it. I agree with you in that there are certain aspects of episode two and episode three that really do drag uh, become repetitive and slow it down unnecessarily but overall i had a bloody good time watching this i love the premise of the the games and almost like the saw like aspect that, that that you likened it to dan i like the fact that the toy maker has this power and the whole premise of it i just thought was so intriguing it's a really it's a clever idea for a story it's obviously hindered because we don't have the full footage. We're, we're missing three episodes, of course. But taking that hindrance you know, into consideration and the fact that somebody has done the best they can with regards to the still images and, and so on to make it watchable, I, I really enjoyed this. I, I, I'd quite happily go back and watch, again, two and three. Episodes two and three would be a struggle. But I'd quite happily go back and watch one and, and four again. I, I I enjoyed it, and I'm I'm not put off in the slightest with watching more still images. And obviously, there's certain episodes and stories as well that are animated, which we haven't touched upon yet on the podcast, which we should do at some point. But it's I I, I enjoyed it overall. Um, yeah, I think it was interesting as well seeing Stephen and Dodo because we haven't really covered anything from them before, have we? Yeah, I was going to say it's first time seeing them, and I was just about to say you've kind of talked me around on a few bits because I think I've been focusing on a few too many of the negatives when I've been giving that sort of off the cuff um, sort of review of it. Um, Yeah, I think I'll have to revisit that when I come to do my ranking at the end because I'm already thinking I may have been too harsh because even just thinking back to the recording you know the what we've just done just talked about i i wasn't factoring in the the sort of the saw in the saw like in uh, aspect of the story that was so positive on before so i'm gonna go away and have a think and i will re-rank it in uh, in, in our wrap-up episode because i think i might have been a bit harsh just now fair enough fair enough so then dan what are we doing next week it's guest week oh Ooh, ooh, and we've got another first-time guest on the show. Uh, we've got somebody, I, th- I think you might know him, uh, Benny Mack. Oh, I've heard of this um, Yeah, he, he does He does some other time travel podcast. Um, 
you know, you know, I don't know who could possibly do, you know, more than one time traveling podcast. Really, you know, cheating on his co-host. Um, but yeah, <laughs> we've, got, we've got Benny Mac, size co-host from uh, from the waiting room, and we're looking at the Christopher Eccleston episode, "The Unquiet Dead." Lovely stuff. Love a bit of Eccleston, and Benny's always great to chat to as well. Yeah, you can hear us every week via the SJP World Media Network, looking at Quantum Leap with the Waiting Room podcast. Uh, before we go, then, Dan, do you want to let everyone know whereabouts they can find your good self and all the shows you are involved in? Yeah, if you want to hear more of me talking about stuff, uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at DanGriffin21, uh, usually tweeting about wrestling that's a minimum six weeks out of date or movies that are 25 years out of date. Uh, and audio-wise, I'm over on Unbooking Territory where myself and UTT Rob uh, go through the first and last of professional wrestling. Uh, we just recorded a five-hour epic at the time we recording this with Cy Powell uh, on uh, on the career of Shawn Michaels, so look out for that coming up in probably about two months. Uh, you can, <laughs> we've, we've also got side projects, uh, Unbooking the Tankatory, where we look at the life and times of the in-ring career in WCW of legitimately the hardest man that ever lived, Mr. David Tank Abbott. And we've got Unputting the Territory, where we look at the only time a wrestling belt has changed hands via legitimate sporting competition, and we're looking at the Being the Elite Gator Golf Tournament, sporting look at a, a legitimate sporting competition for a wrestling belt. So I'd expect me to be getting ridiculously uh, annoyed by the fact that the Jacksons run a shoddy ship and don't take the rules seriously. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Anything I am involved in, as always, you can find via the network that carries this show. So you need to be seeking out SJP World Media on Facebook and Twitter, and that's at SJP World Media there. And on all your podcast players, platforms, and providers, make sure you are giving it a follow, a like, a subscribe, a big fat five star review because we're bloody worth it. We're amazing. And there's all sorts going on there wrestling, wrestling podcasts, TV, movies. Uh, there's some sports content joining the channel. There's live shows galore, more live shows coming as well, gaming content, all at SJP World Media. But most importantly, you can follow this show itself on Facebook and Twitter at the Doctor Who Pod. That's at the D-R-W-H-O-P-O-D, at the Doctor Who Pod. I enjoyed that, Dan. That was great. I'm looking forward to next week and speaking to Benny about a bit of Eccleston. And uh, I guess, mate, I will uh, see you then. Can't wait. See you soon. And to everyone else, as always, thank you for listening. You know full well there is a palm parry somewhere called the Celestial Sex Toy Maker. Fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs>